right club. Be the right club today. Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect anything different? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. I'm hoping that today's episode finally set th- sets things right with the uh, Canadian listeners of this show for the uh, many probably unjustified shots that I've taken at uh, Mike Weir and his game over the years. Something I'm not necessarily uh, proud of, and the more I've covered golf, the more I've appreciated the grind that goes into uh, and the effort that goes into the game when it's not there anymore, when you're battling injuries, and the perseverance of uh, someone like Mr. Weir, which we're going to talk a lot about, the extreme highs of his career, as well as some of the extreme lows. Uh, I think any critiques of, uh, of the shots I've fired are very fair, and I will accept Criticism on some of that, but definitely did not want to pass up the opportunity to interview Mike and uh, to get some perspective on what he's gone through, as well as, uh, of course, talk about the Masters, winning the Masters and being a legend in Canadian sports. I've never seen, and I say, I'll say this later on in the interview, I've never seen a country ride harder for uh, any one particular golfer than Canada does Mike Weir. So uh, we really appreciate him spending the time. And lastly, before we do get rolling here, This sadly would have been PGA Championship week. Uh, Hopefully this does go off as planned in August. But since it is supposed to be a major week, why don't we start with some appropriately themed trivia? There's only one player who has made more than 250 birdies at the PGA Championship since 2000. Can you name him? I think you should probably be leaning towards selecting a Callaway player if you know where this is going. And if you selected Phil Mickelson, you'd be right. If you like golf trivia, Callaway's got something for you on Thursday, May 14th at 6.30 Eastern. They partnered with FanBeat to put on a 10-minute live golf trivia game that you can play on your phone, tablet, or computer. It's the Maverick Majors Trivia Challenge. Prizes on the line include a Maverick driver, Jaws Wedge, Chrome Soft Golf Balls, and more. They did this in April, what would have been Masters Week, and it's a, it's a fun way to test your knowledge and a cool chance to win some Callaway stuff, and it's totally free. So get on this uh, while you can. The game is live Thursday, May 14th at 6.30 p.m. Eastern. And to answer the first question in advance, visit fanbeat.com slash Callaway. That's fanbeat, F-A-N-B-E-A-T. Get there right now. Fanbeat.com slash Callaway to be ready for the 10-minute live game happening on Thursday, May 14th at 6.30 p.m. Eastern. Without any further delay, here is Mike Weir. So you're just about to get over the hump, finally. What First thing I want to know, though, is what is life like for a professional golfer from ages around, say, 45 to 49? Well, yeah, that's it's a tough age. You know, there's not a lot of guys on the on the PGA Tour that are still doing well. You know, there's there's Furyk and, and Stricker and Lee Westwood's still playing well in that, in that age group. Um there's not a ton of guys and it's, it's a bit of a limbo. Um, you're trying to stay sharp because you're at least in my case, I was I'm still very motivated for the, the champions tour upcoming and, you know, you can't not play, you know, Craig Perry, the you know great Australian player told me, uh, when I was about 45, he's like, Mike, you got to keep playing. He's like, I made the mistake. I went back to Australia and didn't, uh, didn't play much and then came back out and I was so far removed from the game and the little aspects of, you know, the basic, scoring aspects of the game that um you know you kind of lose if you're not competitive and you're not you're not playing tournament golf you know it's a lot different than you know playing with your buddies so you got you got to stay sharp so i tried to take that advice to heart and try to try to play as much as i can and you know limited limited schedule the last uh, few years but enough to keep in touch with my game and know what i need to work on and know um um you know and just keep that that scoring uh, try to get that scoring sharp for the Champions Tour because that's what it's all about out there. Is those guys shoot some low scores and uh, you have to be you know kind of out of the gate quickly when it's only three rounds. Yeah. So a couple things there. What is kind of the current status of your game and how do you think that does translate uh, to the Champions Tour? One from a, a course setup standpoint, but I think there's also this this kind of thing around the Champions Tour that everyone thinks, oh, the guys that as soon as you turn fifty, oh, you're just going to go dominate out there. And it seems to be there's at least a period of time where guys get punched in the face a little bit and say like, hey, wait a second, these guys are shooting some very low scores out there. Yes. Um, you know, the first part of your question, yeah, the state of my game is very good. I, you know, before this uh, pandemic hit, the last tournament I played on the Corn Ferry Tour, 
in Florida. I was writing contention there on Sunday and played a nice final round. The guys kind of, you know, I think I would end up being maybe four or five shots behind the leader at the end of the day, but, you know, had some, had some chances, had, had some looks on, on my last nine holes to, to make it really close. Didn't quite get it done, but I was there. I was, I was playing good, hitting lots of fairways and greens and doing all the things you need to do to score well. And, um, and then I haven't played since. So my game still feels good. I'm, I'm in a process right now. I've taken a week off. I'd, I'd been working really hard. And, you know, as we get closer to 50, you get a few things and my back was starting to bug me. So I just said, okay, now's a good time to take a week off and, uh, I'll get back at it next week. But, um, yeah, I mean, that, that's true. I mean, a lot of guys, uh, who, who you think would do very, very well on the champions tour when they initially turn 50, have maybe found a bit of a tougher time. And then there's some other guys that have, um, maybe didn't have as much success on the PGA tour, but have done very well on the, on the champions tour. So it's, uh, I guess, you know, just because you turn 50 and you've done well on the PGA tour, it's not a guarantee that you're going to do well on the champions tour. Cause there's a lot of motivated guys um, that maybe didn't do as well on the, on the PGA tour and they're, they're working really hard and their short games are still good. And yeah, they're shooting some low scores. So you got to be ready. Yeah. Well, I do kind of want to kind of talk to how we, how we got to where we currently are, but uh, there's a lot I want to cover with your career arc um, as well. But I, I want to go back to the beginning, Canada, not the best climate to become a world-class golfer left-handed clubs i imagine are even less available than right-handed clubs yeah. how what was that struggle like as a kid and how, how did you emerge you know to becoming a major champion out of that kind of uh setup yeah chris i mean it was a golf was just a summer sport for me uh, all the way until i went you know came to byu uh, in college so all my junior days it was just a summer thing you know, I didn't do anything for six months of the year. I mean, you know, my dad, my last couple of years uh, as a junior, when I was, you know, 17, 18 years old, I believe we put a net up in my garage so I could hit some into the, into the net in my garage. But it was summertime was golf. And then, it, you know, there was baseball and then there was hockey in the winter, um, kind of come out of the winter and then start, you know, working on golf game again and, you know, come, come April. And, you know, I think that, you know, kept me from being burnt out on the sport. It made me a, a better rounded athlete, I think, playing all the different sports. But yeah, clubs clubs were difficult to come by. I had uh, my first set of clubs were a set of uh, Spalding Croydon irons that I got from a neighbor across the street. It was a three, five, seven and nine iron and a driver and a five wood, no wedges. You know, we found a putter. And then uh, I remember kind of accumulating my clubs through junior, junior tournaments. You know, you'd, you'd win a $50 gift certificate in the pro shop if you had a good finish. And I'd save some of those gift certificates up to get my first putter. Or um, I remember seeing my first sand wedge. It was this Gene Saracen Wilson sand wedge at this junior tournament in London, Ontario. And, and I played pretty well in this junior tournament and had enough of a gift certificate for this club that was probably, I don't know, 70 or $80 or something to uh, get, get my first sandwich. And, um, so it was tough to come by clubs, uh, early on in my junior days. And I guess in my later teens is when I first got, I got my first set of real golf clubs, my, uh, golf pro Steve Bennett at Huron Oaks golf club when I was a kid, uh, as a Christmas present, cause he saw how keen I was on the game, uh, bought me a set of, uh, Wilson staff irons. And that was my first real set of irons. They had the leather wrap grips like Jack Nicholas, who was a hero of his and a hero of mine. And, uh, that was pretty cool to get my first real set of irons. Late teens. Gosh, yeah. I didn't know that. I, yeah. I, I, I honestly didn't know all the full backstory of all the clubs there. That I, I kind of, uh, was wondering if, uh, what, whether that was a good question or not, but man, that, well, all right. So that I was hoping, uh, this would lead you into, into a famous story that you tell, but I'll pry it out of you. Did you ever seek advice as to whether or not you should stay a left-hander? Yes. And, uh, yeah, there is a, there is kind of a famous story behind that. I think I was 13 years old and it was my first, my first Canadian open that I had ever gone to. We went to, um, a couple of juniors from my hometown. We, we drove up, uh, one of our parents drove us up to uh, the Canadian open for the first time. And there was a clinic by Andy Bean and Tom Kite. And, uh, we got to sit, you know, kind of in a semicircle around these two guys as they gave a clinic and, when they were done doing the clinic, which was really cool, they, they took the big shag bag of a uh, big bucket of balls and they rolled them to all of us juniors. And we got to fill our pockets with all these uh, Titleist golf balls, which was really cool. And it was the first time I got to see professionals up close, but there wasn't any lefties. You know, there was uh, Ernie Gonzalez and Russ Cochran were the two that were there. 
I remember kind of seeking them out and, and watching them on the when they came to the range. Um, but there, you know, there wasn't a lot of lefties um, on the PGA Tour, and I thought to myself, you know, I was 13. I thought, well, if I want to be a professional golfer, do I need to switch? And because that was kind of like the, I guess the stigma. You know, a lot of dads were switching their kids if they were left-handed to right-handed. I had a couple buddies that that happened to, and um, I wanted to ask the best. And Jack Nicholas was uh, my idol, and so I wrote him a letter in uh, '83, late '83, and uh, or '84, and um, yeah, I got a letter back from him saying, "Hey, you know, I've always believed that you know you should stick to your natural swing, and and uh, you should you should just stick stick to it, and best of luck in your in your uh, goal of becoming a professional golfer." And yeah, it's pre- pretty cool to get a letter back. I mean, I just I didn't know where to send it. I think Jack was writing for Golf Magazine at the time, and my dad and I got golf magazine's address and we just sent it in care of jack nicholas to golf magazine and and he got it and uh you know a few years ago probably in the in the mid 2000s i brought the letter to uh, Muirfield village and showed him and we got a kick out of it and you know he had heard about it over the years because i had played with gary and jack a number of times in qualifying schools and you know mini tour events and things so i'd been around jack a, a little bit and, and i told him the story but i finally got to show him the letter he thought it was great Hmm. Yeah, I can imagine you. You must have that framed somewhere. Then I do. Yeah, I have it. I have it framed in uh, in my office. Well, so what is what was your amateur career like, and and your path to the PGA Tour? And I, you go from seven tries at Q School to winning the Masters. So something changed big time at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of that's a that's an all encompassing question there. But take us to how you ended up on the uh, on the major golf scene. Well, I guess my trajectory in golf was always just a, a slow rise. I mean, I was a, you know, I was a pretty good junior golfer. And by the time I was, you know, 17, 18, looking at colleges, I was one of the better ones in our Southwestern Ontario. Um, when I, when I came to BYU, I was, you know, I was kind of starting half of the tournaments, you know, our coach made us qualify all the time. He always put us under the gun to qualify to be one of the five guys that traveled to a tournament. In my freshman year, you know, I won a tournament in Mexico, but then I, you know, I could, I could finish eighth in our, in our own team qualifying and miss the next trip because he always made us qualify. So I played about half the time my freshman year. And then by the time I was a senior, I was a second team All-American. So I kind of got a little better and that was kind of the trajectory of my professional career. When I turned pro and I had some success, I won a Canadian tour event my, my rookie year in 93, but I missed a bunch of cuts. Um, and then there was some drought, 94, 95, and, you know, I may have won another Canadian tour event, but it was, I was slowly getting better. And my game was, you know, a real watershed moment for me, I think was, I think it was 93 or 94. I was on the range. I I'd qualified for the Canadian open and I walked up onto the driving range and there was only one spot available. The range was packed and it was right beside Nick Price and Nick Price was still number one or two in the world at the time and I had to drop my little shag bag of golf balls right beside him and look face to face being left-handed and listen to the sound of the ball coming off the club face and then my little dinks and dunks out there a little off the heel a little off the toe and I remember walking off the range and being slightly intimidated and and Nick was obviously you know said hello and was you know as personable as can be but I just thought to myself wow there's you know out of if we played a hundred times I might beat him a couple of times just because of my short game, but this a player like that is just, you know, I'm never going to be able to compete with a player like that until I refine my technique. So I started going to work on my game and uh, studying the game, studying technique a lot more than what I had earlier in my career. So it, it was a long process, uh, 94 through 97, as I refined my game and started seeing some results on the Canadian Tour and a little bit in Australia and Asia. Um, and I, I finally got on the PGA Tour '98 for my first time. Well, so take us through. Well, what are some of the the techniques that you learned or ev- that evolved? I think mm-hmm. I'm fascinated to to see to know what tangible things take someone from kind of this middle ground to you know being an. You eventually became the third ranked player in the world. So mm-hmm. how did you? What did you specifically improve on? Oh, so many things. But I guess the the, the biggest thing was um, I hit the ball very low. You know, growing up with a hockey background, um, I had a, a very shut club face, and I know that's kind of in vogue. To, you know, back then in the you know mid '90s, Nick Price had kind of a cup wrist, and you know Hogan talked about a cup wrist, uh, and and Price and Faldo were two of the best players, and David Ledbetter was their was their coach. So my caddy Brennan Little, who now caddies for uh, Gary Woodland, 
um, or he wasn't my caddy back then. He was still trying to play the Canadian tour. He was working down in California and I would go down there to practice in the winters in Utah. And he was taking lessons from this guy, Mike Wilson, who was working for David Ledbetter at the Ledbetter Academy out in Palm Springs. So I went and watched this lesson that he gave Brennan and I was just impressed and I, and it made me think about things and, and a diff- different approach and, you know, stability in my lower body was, was a big thing. The club face position was another thing. So getting the club face more open for me back then really helped. I, I had a very shut club face. The ball was low. I couldn't, I couldn't stop a five iron in the green the thing was coming in so flat and just my technique through working on stability, shortening my swing, making it a little more efficient, using my body better. Um, yeah, it was, was, was a lot of work, but, um, yeah, the efficiency started coming around and I started seeing some results. So that's kind of where we started. A quick break here to check in with our friends at Herbal Active, U-R-B-A-L-A-C-T-I-V. They are, of course, the CBD provider uh, for the entire No Laying Up family. Get a lot of messages. Hey, what's the CBD company, guys? What is it? Listen closely. Herbal Active, U-R-B-A-L-A-C-T-I-V. You can use promo code NLU20 for 20% off anything in their store. They still are offering hand and, and surface sanitizing spray, a three-pack for $15. This stuff is still pretty hard to come by. And as well, they're always offering their great CBD products. I use the drops. Uh, my fiance uses the drops as well. They've got balms. They've got mints, a lot of different. And they got a lot of information on their website at herbalactive.com. What exactly... 99% pure CBD extract is all your frequently asked questions are right there at the top as to why a water-based product is better for your body than an oil-based product. Um, will this stuff get you high? The answer is that is no, but the, all the details of that are all on their website. So check it out. Give them a look at herbalactive.com. Again, promo code NLU20 for 20% off your order. U-R-B-A-L-A-C-T-I-V. Let's get back to Mike Weir. Well, you've kind of, a couple of your comments so far, you've really prided yourself on your short game. One, was that always the case? And two, did you feel like that was, I don't want to say a competitive disadvantage, but when you looked at other the way the other top pros played, did you ever wonder if your game style, you know, kind of fit that format or if you, or if you would have to make drastic changes to your playing style? Yeah, I, I knew there was some pretty drastic ball striking improvements that I need to make. My short game was always very good. Um, and, you know, I, I was always, you know, interested in different techniques. I watched and learned from different players and paid attention to what guys were doing out of the bunker. I remember being in the bunker with Paul Azinger early in my career on the Canadian tour when I qualified maybe that same year. And I was never afraid to ask guys for advice. You know, my college golf coach, Carl Tucker, just said, always, you know, be around the best players, ask them questions. Um, and I took that advice. I, you know, if I saw after, after being on the range with Nick Price there, whenever I saw him at an event, I'd always ask to sit with him at lunch and pick his brain. And this particular time in the bunker, I remember talking with Paul Azinger and learning a, learning a few tips on short game, but the real overhaul was my golf swing and, and being more efficient driver of the ball and better iron player. And I knew that my game needed to be built around efficiency, hitting fairways, hitting greens. I'm not going to overpower. Of course, I'm not a big guy. I don't hit it very far. Um, but my, I knew I had a, you know, a pretty elite short game. And if I could just be more consistent and hit more fairways and hit more greens that, you know, who knows, maybe, you know, my goal was just to get on the PGA tour. I was, that was my first goal is to be a PGA tour member and uh, to get to that level and you know those six or seven years playing in Canada and overseas I was getting tired and was getting worn out of uh, you know being in my car all over the country and, and traveling and missing cuts and not making money I wanted to get on the big tour and uh, that was my first goal and I knew I needed to be more efficient with my swing and that's kind of what makes your career arc so interesting is that you were you were not a you know you you struggled relatively speaking as a pro for so long and then became a true world elite class player and I just think that's a that's a is there any kind of player you can look at and think of off the top of your head or maybe you've thought of that kind of had a somewhat similar career arc that you had I'm hmm. sure it exists but I yeah. just like I'm, I'm struggling to think of a comp you know <laughs> yeah I, I'm sure it exists for sure in my era there wasn't many guys right out of college that got on the tour there was you know, Mickelson's the same age as me, and he got right in the tour. And Furyk played a year or two on the on the web or whatever it was Nike tour back then. And then he got out there, and Justin Leonard got out there right out of college in Duval. Those were the four guys that I remember that were 
that were really elite and got on the PGA Tour and did, did well. It's a little different, you know, nowadays. So fast forwarding to 1999, your first PGA Tour win comes at the Air Canada Championship. And I can honestly say I don't think I've ever experienced, you know, in the, all the years I've been doing this, a country that rides harder for one particular person <laughs> than Canada does for you. So mm-hmm. was that place just going absolutely absurd when you won that tournament? It really was. It was uh, it was incredible. I, I'll never forget coming up. Um, well, I hold the shot on uh, on 14. I I bogeyed a missed a short putt on 13 and I, I think it put me one behind and you know, came to 14 and I hit a bunch of shots, you know, kind of mid to short irons during the week. I probably hung two or three within two or three inches of the hole, a couple shots that looked like they're going in and didn't go in. And, uh, I hit my, I hit a little, uh, rescue club or five wood down there. And it was just in the first cut. And I remember saying to Brennan, I'm like, this would be a great time for one of these shots to go in. And sure enough, this thing, uh, came off grade and, you know, pitched on the green how I wanted. And, you know, lucky enough went in, but just the, the reaction to the crowd. And I'll still remember that was one of the biggest uh, reactions I've ever had. And, you know, and then coming up 18, it was, it almost felt like a major championship in in a way because it was in Canada, my first win. It felt like a bit of a British Open because it was, you know, the weather kind of came in a little bit and everybody had some jackets on. The I remember seeing people up in the crowds kind of huddling up and it rained a little bit and it just felt like an open championship or something coming up 18. And, it was a really cool uh, experience to have your first win come in your home country, and the way the fans reacted was incredible. Well, just a few weeks before that, you're tied for the lead at the PGA Championship at Medina mm-hmm. with who, who was the I forget who you who were you tied with going to that last round? Yeah, who's that guy? <laughs> Tiger Woods. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, all right, so you have not won on the PGA Tour yet. What what is the true effect of Tiger Mania in that situation? Well. To go back even a couple of weeks before that or a month before that, I, you know, this is my only my second year on the PGA Tour. My first year, I lost my card. So I didn't really even have any, you know, I may have had one top 10 finish or something. Had to go back to Q school and I won Q school and, uh, you know, had some nice events. I had a pretty good event in Atlanta early in the year, but we come to the Western Open. I find myself right in contention with Tiger. We start the last last day. I think he's three ahead. And he and I are paired the, the last day at the Western Open at Cog Hill. And he wins by two. But I kind of, I beat him on the day and I had a good chance. And, but Tiger did what he needed to do, which, he, which he's done all, all of his career and made some key clutch shots down the stretch. But I walked off, even though I didn't win the tournament, I'm like, I can play with this guy. I can compete. I know, I know what I'm made of now, you know, and I really felt confident. And so we fast forward another month and I'm in the final round of the, of the PGA. And, and it was, you know, playing with Tiger and in, in the final round of a major is a little bit different. And I got off to a great start. I hit a great drive down number one, hit a solid iron shot, two putted. And then it all started to kind of get a little bit fast for me. Tiger made, hit a great shot into two and I hit it on the back of the green. I rolled it down to maybe five feet. He rolled his 10 footer in for birdie. And I missed my putt for par and just the momentum of the crowd. I'll never forget what, trying to get to the third tee. He, he had already made his birdie putt. So he was on the back of the cre- green while I was, you know, putting for par. And as he walked up to three tee, the crowd just kind of funneled in behind him. And it took me, I don't know, it probably took four minutes for me to get to the next tee. And I wasn't even on the tee and I hear this whack and he's teed off on number three and everything kind of got a little bit fast. So it was a combination of being in the, I think in the, in final round of a major championship and not being ready for that tiger effect. And I think everything kind of snowballed. And then I started pressing and chasing pins and feeling pressure and, you know, and I just kind of fell apart. I, you know, I three putted and did, you know, my short game really fell apart that day. Um, And, but so it was a great learning experience and, I walked away saying, oh, the, you know, it was a it was a tough day today, but I wasn't crushed by it. I mean, I was sure, surely disappointed, but I wasn't crushed by it. I just I was determined like, hey, next time I'm in contention with this guy, I'm going to have security with me to get to get through the crowds. I'm I know what to expect next time. That's the way I approached it. But it's still phenomenal to play with Tiger in that scenario. I mean, he's like watching Michael Jordan, one of the best athletes of all time. Tigers in that category. And it's fun to play with them and it's fun to, to try to match them. 
and you know i don't have the skills but the way i've always taken that is like i have nothing to lose you know i'm i'm not expected to win so i would spin it in my head that there's not that much pressure yeah gosh i've i've always kind of wondered like what is the all right is the tiger effect real like how is it and then just that story right there i'm like oh man i don't know how you how you don't end up completely on your heels after something like that happens very early in the round <laughs> And and I was on my heels. I like that day. I was on my heels for sure. After after that second hole, and I, I started to feel rushed, and I didn't do. You know, I I I kind of lost my mental focus a little bit, and I wasn't able to capture it back. And that that's what I was very disciplined about was was my mental game. Um, when I was playing my best, um, I I seemed to be able to tune things out. And that day, I didn't. Uh, I wasn't able to uh, to recapture the nice rhythm and flow to the round and to tune things out. And I like to think in my heyday, no matter who I was playing with, I could kind of tune them out and just kind of do my business. Well, kind of moving ahead in the timeline here, you, you win uh, WGC American express in 2000, you win the tour championship in 01, but 03 is kind of one of uh, what I want to get to. I'm sure a, a topic in a year you've talked about a lot, but you start out, you win the Bob hope, but as well, you go and win Nissan at Riviera. You you also win it the next year. What is it about Riviera that set up great for you? How did you have always have a special affinity for that golf course? Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I guess I I love uh, traditional old golf. I, I've seemed to drawn to those those types of golf courses. Um, I love the variety of Riviera. The different shots you have to hit. You have to drive. You have to do everything well there. You have to drive it well. You have to hit your irons well. It's it's a tough putting golf course. Um, I would say early in my career, I didn't, I love the course, but I didn't have great success there, but I learned to figure out my game plan for that place and execute well. And, um, yeah, I just kind of, yeah, end up falling in love with it for sure. <laughs> well, do you ever get tired of answering questions about what happened later that spring? No, never, <laughs> never. <laughs> I tried to get as far in, uh, as we could before we started talking masters. But I, I first thing I want to know though, is it as big of a life changer to win the masters as people make it out to be? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, it, it's a huge life changer. It kind of hit me the next day, obviously the, the moment and celebrating with your family and friends is, is special. And I had a unique situation. I had this, we were doing this deal with Sears and it had been in the works for about a year and we were going to launch this this clothing line in the Sears stores across Canada. And we were planning to do it the Sunday after Augusta. And this had been in the works for a while, but you know, I win and then we fly in the next morning and we're going down to uh, uh, the Sears uh, downtown Toronto. And I just see this big line of people all the way down the street as we're driving in. I thought, well, they haven't opened the store yet. Are they letting people in? They're like, Oh no, the store's open. It's people can't get in. They're waiting to get in. It was just that packed in there. I was doing a little autograph session. I thought that's the first time it hit me. And I thought, well, my, you know, my life's about to change here. And, um, yeah, that, that was a real uh, moment that sticks out in my mind. Do you ever go back and watch it? Watch the highlights? Uh, recently someone showed that to me. I've been doing some stuff on Instagram with this company that's helping me, you know, put out some content and we've been pulling together some video footage and stuff. And that's the first time I had seen it for a while. Yeah. That, you know, it was pretty cool to see it again. I have, I don't go back and watch things like that. I don't go back and watch the final round or, uh, you know, I, I just, I don't know. You know, if I'm, if I'm looking for technique things every once in a while, I'll pull up some old footage just to, to look at what I was doing maybe in my golf swing. And I haven't even done that in a while, but, um, but I don't go back and watch final rounds of tournaments and things. Well, one one story from that, the O3 Masters that has always really intrigued me when we heard uh, Lynn Matisse tell it was, and I don't. I'm sure you're you're versed in it too. But did the tenth green when you guys went to the playoff mm-hmm. that you guys both blew putts past? Mm-hmm. And Len has has insinuated that he did not know what they did to ten green before the playoff. Did you know, or have you since learned what happened? Yeah, no, I did not know either. And in fact, in that playoff, where I hit my second shot on the tenth green was almost identical to where I'd hit it a couple hours earlier in the course of regulation when I was playing the tenth hole. And I, I rolled this putt up and over the hill and cozied it down there, you know, to a tap in, you know, a, a foot away or two feet away or something. So when I had that putt, I thought, okay, I know this putt. And I hit the putt and it came up over the ridge and it just felt perfect. Felt this felt the same as the same putt that I hit two hours ago. And when it rolled away, I was just shocked. I couldn't believe that it rolled like it did, you know, nine, 10 feet past the hole. And, uh, yeah, come to find out later that they had 
they had rolled the green. Well, I guess when I was finishing up on 18 and signing my card that they, they had rolled the green and obviously didn't tell Len or myself <laughs> that they had rolled the green. So it made us look a little bit silly, which I'm kind of disappointed that that, that, that happened like that because it, I really did hit a, you know, my putt, my first putt was, I, I thought it was just going to be a tap in, you know? So anyways, at least it didn't decide the playoff. That's right. It happened to both of you is the, is the comforting right. factor there, but that is crazy to rewatch. I've watched some of it last night at, uh, how far Matisse's ball goes by too. It's just crawling, crawling, crawling. And it, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. It, I, I, I'm glad to hear you say you're kind of disappointed in the way that finished. Cause I think it did put a sour taste in people's mouths for that, for that masters, but it was actually a, an excellent, excellent masters. You have, so what I love about it too, is that you had broke up tiger's run. I mean, he, he was, he didn't finish runner up obviously, but he had won the previous two. So he's the one that, that puts the green jacket on you. So I want to know, what do uh, wh- who do you sit with at the champions there when you go back every year? I'm on the uh, far end of the table. I've kind of fallen in this group with uh, with Gary Player and DJ Singh's down there, and Charles Cootie's down there, and Adam Scott and Trevor Immelman and Nick Faldo. We're we're all kind of in this uh, on the on the opposite end of the table. We're the chairman and the and the past champion. We're we're like the kids in the back of the classroom over there, you know, on the on the far end. Do you have a uh, a go to or your favorite champions dinner story or something that uh, something that's happened over the years or a story you've heard there over the years that you love to tell? Oh, there's I mean, there's so many. I mean, you know, the, the great thing, I Gary Player has always been a, a hero of mine, and I think being around him and he's a great storyteller, you know, and he and he tells stories from the past with, you know, with Ben Hogan and Byron Nelson and and Sam Snead, and I think all of us guys that sit down there really enjoy listening to those stories about. Um, what great athletes these guys were and, and the tough times they had and to try to make it work, you know, to, uh, to chase it and you know, chase that, the tour and, and not have to do a club job. And um, so those stories are always great. I think the one that stands out the most though, is probably Arnold Palmer two years before he, he passed away. I think, you know, I, I think his health was starting to fail a little bit. And in the, the previous years that I had been, been at the champions dinner, he did, he never said much. He let whoever well Byron Nelson was the chairman when when we first started, and then Ben Crenshaw took over for Byron when when Mr. Nelson passed away. The, ben was always telling little anecdotes about you know the Masters and how it's changed and the history of the game, and and then the chairman would say something, and then the past champion and and Arnold Jack, everybody just kind of is is uh, respectful to them and not trying to overshadow, you know that special moment for them. So Arnold in all the years I had been there, had never gotten up and said anything. And I, I, in my mind, I was like, man, I want to hear some stories from Jack and Arnold and Tom Watson and Ray Floyd. But this year in particular, he got up and, and said something that was very heartfelt to all of us players and said how special it's been for him to be, you know, a master champion and uh, to be in the room with, with all of us. And for me to be included in that was just, man, I was, I got out of there. I was just bawling, and uh, it was really something. Even to this day, that you know, I think of all the all the great players that are in the champions locker room and in that dinner. When Mr. Palmer walked in, um, there was something special and different when when he came in. He's just such a lovable man, and just makes you feel. He made you feel so special, and we really miss him. Well, can you compare what it's like going back to Augusta now as a past champion compared to? You know, say 15 years ago, while you're still kind of in your peak playing form, 10 years ago, and now, what's it, what's it like, you know, to kind of have that ability to go back every year, and what's that, how does that experience, you know, the more times you do it, is it get any less special in any way? I'd imagine not, but how could just kind of compare what it's like to go back as time goes on. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah, it's a, uh, I've never really thought about it that way, but it is a little bit different. You know, you're. Um, even at my age at 50, you still go in with the, with the hope that you're going to, that you're going to play well and, and contend and compete. But you're also in admiration of the type of players that are out there now. And you watch them on the range and you think how far this game's come with not only technology, but the athletes and how much, how much better they are now. And so you, you go in and you, and you focus on your game and you, and you're able to, to go into the champions locker room and, and sit with, Tom Watson and Jack Nicholas and hear great stories and enjoy the, the Tuesday dinner and enjoy just um, seeing old faces and familiar faces from the media to your family to everything. 
But at the same time, you can enjoy the tournament and enjoy the type of game the guys are playing now. And uh, so it is it is a little bit different and, and a little bit more nostalgic, I guess, now than maybe in my prime. You know, I never I didn't pay attention as much. You know, I did enjoy seeing the guys and seeing Jack and the great champions that are in there and talking with them at lunch and everything. But then I, I would be so focused and back to what I had to do. Now it's uh, the gas pedals off a little bit more and I'm enjoying it a little bit more. Yeah. I just always find that dynamic interesting of, you know, this incredibly ceremonious, you know, act of the champions dinner and the history of all the past champions being there versus, Hey, you still got to go out and compete, you mm-hmm. know, same tees, same pins, everything as these guys <laughs> that are in tip top shape. And it, it, uh, it, it's just an interesting dynamic, but what's, uh, what's something about the week 2003 that maybe a lot of people don't remember or something that's significant to you in some way, um, or, or a favorite story, I guess, that you'd like to tell from that week? Oh, um, well, one is that it was, it was an odd week that, um, you know, Thursday was completely washed out. So it was completely rained out. So we didn't start until Friday. So it was kind of a sprint. Uh, until Sunday, it was uh, play as many. And it rained practice rounds too, and par three and everything, right? Yeah, it was just a really, really wet week. And at the end of the day, I was thinking to myself, maybe this is this can be a tough week for me because the course is going to play very long. And but then again, coming in with some longer clubs into these greens, the ball was just sticking. You know, if I was hitting, I remember hitting a five wood into number one um, mm-hmm. early in the week, hitting five wood into eighteen. And by the end of the week, you know, on Sunday I had four iron. It was like five wood three iron, three iron, four iron. That's how long the course was playing. Um, but so, so that aspect. And then when you have the lead, I had the lead after Thursday, you go into the, in the media center and how long the days were like Thursday or sorry, Friday and Saturday were just so long. You play golf all day and then you're in the media center and you're trying to get food at nine o'clock at night and you're getting up, but you know, you're getting up at, you know, four thirty in the morning to get back and get warmed up and as soon as daybreak comes, you're, you're back on the course. So it was, it was a sprint. And then Sunday, you know, when you're in the last group, you don't tee off till late in the afternoon. So it was the dead opposite on Sunday. It was, you have to find use of that morning time and not get too in your head and just, and slow down. Well, it, it kind of, from based on what we've talked about so far and hearing you describe your swing and how you've worked on things, I, I would, I, I would classify you as a tinkerer and one, I would want to know if that's, if you would, uh, if you would classify yourself as that and how and when stack and tilt got introduced into your game and what was appealing about that? Yeah, I, I would say, I don't know if tinkerer, I think I'm, I'm always trying to evolve and, and trying to find a way to get better as a lot of us are out there. Um, in 2005, I started struggling a little bit with my game, um, in 2006, still, still kind of struggling with, with my coach and, and not really coming up with many solutions uh, and wasn't liking the way I was playing. And here, my, my good buddy, Dean Wilson, who was a college teammate of mine was making this great headway with his game. And, you know, Dean and I were, were cl- really close friends. So we were having lots of dinners together and, I told him how much I was struggling with my game. He's like, well, just have a chat with these guys and, and see what they have to say. And so we chatted and then um, I was doing some, Dean made it to the tour championship, I believe in 2006, this was, and I was out there doing a, I didn't make it to the tour championship that year. And I think I was out there doing something for TaylorMade and uh, Mike and Andy were there with Dean and, and uh, they had time for a, a quick 20 minute lesson. Um, away from the tour championship and they just showed me some things and and immediately I started making better contact and the ball you know was coming off a lot better and so that was kind of the why I I made that move to uh to stack and tilt at that time it was it wasn't a knee-jerk decision it was you know well over a year of I was not hitting the ball well and I was kind of piecing it together with my with my short game and it felt like kind of I was regressing and um so that, well, for are, the listeners, what what does it stack and tilt mean, uh, and why did that appeal to you? And then you kind of told part of that there of you know you you're trying it out and you hit a few balls right away, immediately better contact. But w- was that a big adjustment for you? And what is it? What are the technical aspects of stack and tilt have always kind of confused me. The, the big thing for me is my head was dropping way back in my downswing. As soon as I initiated into my downswing in that transition area, my head was falling way back behind the ball. So they showed me if I kept my head a little bit more centered, I wouldn't have as much flip at the ball and things would be a little bit more stable, which they were. 
I guess the, the gist of it was, was that just that stability and keeping, keeping myself a little bit more centered instead of the head floating around and so much weight transfer, you know, so much weight going from my left leg to my right leg, uh, my trail leg to my front leg. There was, you know, there was movement and there was weight, weight transfer, pressure transfer more than weight transfer in the stack and tilt. So the, the pressure would build up in my left leg being a, in my trail leg being the left-handed golfer. But I wouldn't have this sway off the ball. I was I was a little bit more centered. And a lot of players have, you know, they termed it stack and tilt. But if you look at a lot of the greats, a lot of them did that. You know, you look at Johnny Miller, or Nicholas kept his head steady. And you look at some of Gary Player and you can go down the line. So it was, it was definitely appealing to me. And then I, then I kind of got injured. So um, I got injured with my elbow in 2010. Um, and I just found when I came back from that, I was taking some pretty big divots. Um, staying forward, my, my divot pattern got a little bit uh, stronger and I had to kind of back away from that when I came back after my el- elbow injury. And that's why I kind of moved away from it. Do you know what, what, yeah, I guess, yeah, 2010 was you, you had a torn ligament in your right elbow. Did yep. you have any insight as to how that happened or, or what caused oh, yeah. it? Oh yeah. It happened right during the round. I was, in fact, I, I think, I believe I was either tied for the lead or leading Hilton head midway through the second round. And on the 11th hole, I hit one to the right, really narrow little hole. And, you know, they have all these pine needles um, in the trees. And I was trying to punch a five iron towards the green. And right in front of my ball, which I couldn't see because of the pine needles, was a big tree root. And I was really trying to drive this five iron low. And I just stuck this club right into that tree root. And I felt this sting go right up my arm, right into my elbow. Yeah, I knew something was wrong right away. But it wasn't, like, unplayable. Like, I played the rest of the round, played the rest of the tournament. But... You know, that's where some bad habits started forming, I believe, because I started hitting some kind of funny shots. I knew I was favoring that. I wasn't driving through the ball like I needed to. And after that tournament, when when it was done, I, I took some time off. And But as soon as any time I took time off, a couple of weeks, three weeks, and try to come back, it would just get, you know, get right back to where it was. It would feel better if I took time away. But as soon as I started swinging, it would get uh, it would get back to being really sore again. Um, and that's, that's yeah. you kind of answered one of my questions I had, which is, you know, the struggles that ensued after that, how much of, is it a mixture of injury versus actual, you know, technique struggles? But I, I feel like that at the same time, those two things are impossible to separate. Is that fair to say? I'd say that's totally fair to say. I think, you know, you start, you don't even realize how subconsciously you start to, if you, if you have something you're trying to work around, how you subconsciously start tra- favoring or working around and then you start compensating and how that can snowball and being stubborn as I was, I thought I could kind of play through it and up until the point that I had to have surgery from uh, Dr. James Andrews down in Florida. Um, and then coming back from that, trying to come back and try to pick the ball. And like I said, you know, moving away from stack and tilt cause I didn't want to take divots to, you know, everything can just kind of snowball because then you, now you're just making compensations. You don't want to re-injure yourself and you're, hesitant. Um, so yeah, I think they go hand in hand with, uh, an injury and, and how that can bleed into bad technique. Well, a lot of guys, not a lot of guys, I shouldn't say, but you know, there are tour players that can go out miss a lot of cuts and it doesn't really get noticed. But when you're a former master's champion, it does get noticed. And I guess were you, did you hear any noise or did anything bother you during this period of, you know, you're going out, teeing it up in events with kind of half health, if you will, and you're not performing the way you want. How, what kind of effect did that have on you as far as your drive and energy towards the game? Oh, I think there's uh boy, there's a, there's a range of emotions and there's a range of, you know, if I go back, I mean, there's a range of times from feeling, uh, you know, sad and, and like, uh, frustrated about my game, uh, embarrassed at some points. Um, but the, the determination to try to find a way is always there, but yeah, you're just, when you're, when you're not able to do what you used to be able to do is, is very, very frustrating. And, um, yeah, it was, there was, this is a very difficult time, you know, and, you know, just to be honest, there's, when you're, when you're going through that and you're going through, I went through some family struggles too. You went through a divorce at the same time. There was a lot of stuff and it just goes to show that, you know, golf's a game that you have to have uh, your life in order. You have to have balance in your life. You know, there's no secret why Nicholas is the greatest of all time. 
you know, and, and what he did, he, he credits Barber for that, for keeping, keeping things in check. And so he can focus on his game. And, um, so if those things are all a little bit, uh, unsettled, your game's going to be unsettled. And, you know, my game was definitely unsettled, uh, for a number of years. And, um, thankfully, you know, kind of through that, but that's like life for a lot of people, right? Everybody goes through these, these ups and downs and things aren't perfect. And that's the one thing I've learned through all this is like, you know, I mean, everybody has struggles and, um, I'm not a woe is me kind of, kind of guy. And I'm just, I'm thankful to be back and healthy and, and ready to go now. Well, it, it's gotta be jarring to go from, you know, being in the top 10 in the world to, to playing like you, like you were, but mm-hmm. I've not in all the, all the ways you've described it. I've never heard you even hint at possibility of, of walking away or, or giving up, giving up in any way. Is that fair? Or did you, did you ever have uh, any thoughts of that? No, I don't think I, I really had thoughts of giving up. I'm always, my mind always goes, well, I got to figure it out this way or, or how can I, how can I get back? How can I do it? Um, not saying there wasn't times that I wasn't like in my head, you know, saying like, what is this really worth it? Cause it, I, knew, I knew it was a lot of work to, to get back, but, um, you know, very quickly I'd switch back to the mode of, okay, okay, let's talk to, you know, I went through, I talked to a number of different coaches, you know, David Ledbetter has been, you know, a great friend over the years and spent time with him for a year trying to figure things out because that was a lot of the concept that, you know, early on in my career worked very well. And, um, just having great people in your life, like, like David, you know, my family, uh, my sports psychologist, Rich Gordon to talk through, to, you know, to have somebody to talk through some of these things with was, was really important. And they, they helped keep me on track and they knew how much I love the game and, and how much that, that, that wasn't in the cards. You know, I, I love the game so much playing just with my buddies. I don't want to, I want to play good, just even playing with my friends. I was playing not, I wasn't playing miserably just in tournament golf. I was playing miserably when I, when I was playing at home here, you know, that's, it was just, it, my game was in, as we talked about earlier, because of the circumstances and injuries and all the other things, um, that's, that's what was going on. I felt like if I could get those things in order that, you know, I'm still competitive. I'm still, I can still move well. I'm still pretty flexible that I can get, I can bring this thing back. Yeah. That's, that's the thing about golf. I mean, you, it's, you're, you're putting yourself out there. You know, I imagine at a certain, at a certain level, it, it was embarrassing for you to not, to not play well. And, you know, have your, your game, you know, get commented on almost in, in terms of a punchline. And I'd be, I'd be lying if I said I hadn't participated in that. But the thing I always admired about it was like it, it quitting didn't even seem like an option. I mean, you were, it takes, it takes some pride and determination to go out when you know it's not there and still go tee it up and try. And I, we listened to Max Holma tell the story of, you know, we, his, one of his first years on tour, he missed basically every cut, but you know, he went out and tr- kept trying. He's like, I got, I, 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 the only way out of this is to keep going. Yeah. Yeah. And there, you know, there's been, you know, Steve Stricker, right. He had, yeah. he had a couple of real lean years and so did uh, Westwood. And at the end of the day, you know, there's being a professional athlete and anything, you know, I've been watching this last dance. I don't know if you've been watching. Oh yeah. For watching sure. that, right? <laughs> and this last weekend, you know, Michael Jordan talking about some of the criticism he was getting and, I remember him saying, you know, people just don't, you know, some of that stuff you just have to put aside because people don't know you and they're just going to comment on you and they haven't talked to you. And they, you know, so that, I've always tried to, that, that hit home with me because I've always tried to say that to myself as well. Like when I, when I have heard things and shoot, I'm a human being, you know, you hear the jeers and the, and the comments and you know, it hurts. Um, but you know, I would always tell myself, these people don't know me. They don't know you know, what I'm about, how I got here and the work ethic I have to get here. And, and I've tried to tell that to the young Canadian guys when I talked to them. Yeah, I said, you're Canadian. It's a little bit different being on the PGA Tour. You're a little bit more under the microscope than some guy from Alabama or something where, you know, there's 10 guys on the tour from there. Let's say you might be the only guy from British Columbia right now on the PGA Tour. And you're going to get a little more attention, a little more criticism. And you're going to get pumped up when you do really well a little more. It's um, you got to You got to. Just kind of take that in stride and not uh, when you're doing well, don't don't think you're better than anybody. And when you're not doing well, you're not as bad as they say you are. Well, there's a couple of things I want to ask you about before I uh, let you go. I know I'm taking up. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm over what I suggested uh, on, right. on our time limit. But 2007 President's Cup, 
Uh, one, I've, I've seen it and heard it referenced to as to how the efforts you made to bring that to Canada and two, it ends with you beating Tiger Woods in singles. So one, how did, how did that work? How were you a, a part of the efforts to bring it to Canada? And, uh, what was it like to pl- go up against Tiger Woods in singles? Well, I remember talking to commissioner Fincham about, <clears throat> you know, possibly bringing, bringing it to Canada. And, you know, I, I had already been on three teams and, and, uh, you know, it was becoming a big part of my career, the President's Cup and team golf. And I loved it so much, you know, growing up playing hockey and team sports. I was just loving that we had uh, the chance to to play in these team golf. And, and I thought for one, you know, being uh, now that the U.S. guys have the Ryder Cup and then the next year, the President's Cup, they have something to play in every year. Kind of makes sense to do something that's, you know, not too far to travel. Great golf. A community in Canada and they love golf. They love the sport um, outside of hockey. It's, you know, probably the next biggest sport participation wise being Canadian and being on, on three teams, I would just love to be able to bring that to Canada and help bring it to Canada. So that's how it all kind of started with the, with the talk with the commissioner. And, and then it, uh, it was great to have it finally come to fruition. And yeah, the, the match with Tiger kind of came about because I think, you know, we wanted to have something, uh, I think Gary and Jack talked on Saturday if they could make it work, Tiger play me, that uh, it'd be great for the fans and great for the event. Um, so I guess when the pairings came out, it looked like it was going to happen and we made it happen. So it was a great experience to, to play him in singles at home, uh, the way the crowd reacted and uh, even the way he was. Tiger was great about it all. And we had a great battle. Great. Uh, we've always had a, a great relationship and been able to give each other the business and the needle back and forth. He's really good at that. So you got to be able to give it back to him. So at least I have that one thing over him. He got to deal with Weir Mania, right? Yeah. I mean, he finally got a little payback from 99. So. <laughs> well, yeah. the last one, too, this was so random, uh, at least from a viewer perspective, in 2014 at the Byron Nelson, when you seemingly came out of nowhere to almost run down Brendan Todd and win that event. Take us there. I mean, what what was different about that week, and uh, and what was it like being back in contention after after years of struggling with injuries? Yeah, it was great. It was it was fun to get back in contention and, uh, you know, kind of start out Sunday the way I did, you know, birdieing three of the first four holes and getting, you know, kind of getting on the horse quickly and getting out in front. And, um, yeah, the back nine was a lot of fun. Um, you know, had a, I birdied 16, had a great shot into 17 and had a really good look and thought I made that putt and almost made a long bomb on 18. So, but Brendan did what he had to do. You know, he made some key up and downs um, on, on 16 and 17, you know, some couple of 10 foot putts or something that he made to keep the lead going into 18 and you know almost got it done but yeah it was fun to get that back and kind of show that you know the game was still in there unfortunately I didn't quite uh, get that going you know some some family stuff happened right after that that's when I started going through my divorce and um, that aspect of my life was a bit of a struggle for a couple of years but it was just kind of kind of interesting time as well mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much, Mike, for joining us. Uh, this is some great stories and really appreciated all the perspective on, on your career and uh, excited to see uh, how you tackle things as you turn 50 uh, this coming week and uh, onto the Champions Tour. So thanks for your time. Oh, pleasure. It was fun. Thanks. Cheers. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah! Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than 